Good morning. This is Pastor Mike Letterman with ChristLives.org. Today, we continue our study into the book of Revelation and the final countdown. Today, our text is taken from Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. The first three chapters tell of our Lord's letters to seven actual churches that existed in John's day. Those chapters also paint a clear portrait of the church all the way from Pentecost to the rapture. Chapters 4 through 11 tell us about the chronology of the tribulation period. They take us all the way from the beginning to the end of that terrible seven-year period of time. In chapters 12 to 14, we're taken back from the beginning. These chapters give us the same time period from a different perspective. Now, we're no longer talking about the chronology of the book. Now we're confronted with the characters of the book. Through a series of seven visions, John takes us once again through the days of the tribulation. In our study of this book, we have arrived at the seventh of these visions. These verses close out the pause in the action that we have been in since chapter 12, verse 1. When this chapter ends, we are going to be thrown back into the heat and the horrors of the final days of the tribulation. Before we deal with those things, John gives us a clear vision of our Lord when he comes again in power and glory. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a savior. He came to give his life on the cross so that sin might be paid for and sinners might be set free. When he comes the second time, he's coming as a judge. He's coming to destroy sin, Satan, and all those who stand in defiance to God. When Jesus returns, he will come in power, glory, and judgment, and none will be able to withstand him. You see, there will be no cross for Jesus the next time he comes. There will be a crown. There will be no tree for him to hang upon, but there will be a throne for him to sit upon. Let's move through these verses and catch the vision John shares of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming days of his terrible judgment. I want to preach on the subject, the judge calls his court to order. I want to show you these parts of John's vision. First, let's, leave, let's read from the word of God. We're harvesting the earth and trampling the winepress. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sickle, take your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out, flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 16 stadia. 
Let's look at this, these series of verses. We look at the Lord and his returning. You see, the first image we have, the first image that we are given is of the Lord himself sitting up on a cloud, wearing a crown with a sickle in his hand. Let's look at this image in more detail. Let's look at his person. There is no doubt about whom John is writing. He is writing about the Son of Man. As you may remember, this was one of the titles giving, given to the Lord Jesus when he came to this earth the first time. Jesus used this title to refer to himself some 84 times in the Gospels. It was the way he most often referred to himself. This title identifies Jesus with mankind. This is his human title. It speaks to his sufferings, his service, and his sacrifice. You see, when John sees the Son of Man in the clouds, he is seeing the one who came to this earth and gave his life as a ransom for sin. John is seeing Jesus Christ. Of course, we're promised that Jesus Christ will come in this fashion. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Luke 21, verse 27, John is giving us a preview of that glorious day when Jesus Christ will return in glory and power. Let's look at his position. You see, when John sees Jesus, he sees him wearing a golden crown. The word crown translates the word for a victor's crown. It refers to the laurel wreaths that were given out to the victors in the ancient Olympic Games. The fact that this crown is golden identifies the wearer as a king. When John sees Jesus Christ this time, he does not see a carpenter. He does not see a humble Jewish rabbi. He does not see Jesus of Nazareth. He clearly does not see the son of Mary. When John sees Jesus here, he sees the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He sees the one who invaded Satan's territory and carried off a great victory. He sees the one who walked valiantly into the jaws of death, shedding his blood on the cross to defeat sin and Satan and liberate sinners. He sees the one who walked victoriously out of that tomb on the third day. John sees the king who has come to take possession of his domain. When Jesus comes back, there will be no debate. You see, the United Nations will not convene to see whether he can reign or not. When he comes, he will be wearing the golden crown of the victor. This just means that all the battles have already been fought and he is the winner. Jesus will not rule by the leave of men. He will rule by his right as creator, Lord, Savior, and King. When John sees the king, he has a sharp sickle in his hand. This signifies his power. A sickle is an instrument used to harvest wheat. When Jesus returns, he is coming to both gather his people into his barn as a farmer gathers his wheat, and he is coming to cut down the wicked like a farmer cuts down his wheat. We will see this truth unfold in the next few verses. For now it needs to be said that Jesus can either be your Savior or he can be your judge. 
If you receive him in these days of grace, he will save you and take you to heaven. If you reject him, he will stand in judgment of your life one day. He will either be your savior or your judge. The choice is yours. Let's look at the Lord and his reaping. The next four verses unfold our Lord's plan to bring judgment to this earth. When he came the first time, he came as the sower. He moved through this world sowing the seeds of the gospel of grace. When he returns, he will come as the reaper. He will separate the saint from the sinner. He will take the saints home to heaven and the sinner will be cast into hell. There are two harvests here that are described in these verses. You see, harvest time in the Bible is often used as a picture of souls coming to God for salvation. You can look at John 4, verses 34 through 35. In these verses, the harvest is used as a picture of judgment. Let's see what these verses have to say about the harvest the Lord is going to reap someday. Look at verses 15 through 16 at the reaping of the grain. These two verses describe the Lord Jesus as thrusting his sickle to reap the earth. The world is pictured as a field of wheat that is ready to be harvested. The Lord takes his sickle and he reaps the field. What we are seeing in these verses share the fulfillment of a parable that Jesus told in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. It is the story of a farmer who sowed a wheat field, expecting to reap a bountiful harvest. But his enemy came and sowed tares among his wheat. The servants wanted to pull up the tares, but the farmer knew that doing so would destroy the wheat. His counsel was for both to grow together until the time of the harvest and then the tares could be gathered and burned and the wheat could be gathered and placed in the farmer's barn. You see in the same chapter, Matthew 13 verses 36 through 43, Jesus told his disciples what this parable meant. The good seed represented genuine believers while the tares represented false believers. The good seed represents the saved and the tares represent the lost. The problem with the wheat and the tares is that the two cannot be told apart while they are growing. The, the tares look just like the wheat as it matures. The difference between the two plants becomes clear when they are near harvest time. The head or the top of the tare turns black and stands up straight. It is filled with tiny black seeds that can cause nausea or even death. It is a natural thing that the tares are harvested with the wheat, so every kernel must be inspected. The wheat, on the other hand, has a head filled with heavy kernels of wheat. These kernels cause the head of the plant to bend toward the earth. The obvious contrast here is between the saved and the lost. You see, one day, Jesus will gather his wheat, the genuine believers, unto himself. The wicked will be cut down and cast into a furnace of fire. The judgment of the Lord is coming, and the Lord knows who are his. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Note here that the word ripe is an interesting word. 
It means to be dry or withered. It speaks of a crop that is overripe. What a picture of the grace and long-suffering of God. The harvest of sin has been ripe since the first sin was committed in Eden. Yet God, in his grace, love, and mercy has, has withheld his judgment, giving lost men and women ample time to repent. One day, his patience will be exhausted and his judgment will come on sinners. You need to search your heart and give diligence to make your calling and make sure your calling and your election are sure. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Let's look at the reaping of the grapes. Now the scene changes and we move from the field to the vineyard. The lost are compared to a field of grapes that is ripe to the bursting. They are ready to be harvested. You see, when grapes are harvested, they are placed into a wine press. And in those days, grapes were processed by placing them inside this wine press. The wine press usually consisted of two vats that were connected by a channel. The grapes were placed in the upper chamber, and people would climb into the wine press and use their feet to crush the grapes, extracting their juice. The juice would run out of the upper vat through the channel and into the lower vat where it would be collected for winemaking. Again, we are given a picture of a world that is slated for judgment. The world has rejected Jesus, the true vine. They have attached themselves to the vine of this world and they have drunk deeply of the wine of sin and have rejection of the God of this world. This world rejected God and his son Jesus. But one day he will come and they will face him in judgment. He will crush this world system and all those who hold to it under his feet like a man crushes a grape. This is the very image Isaiah paints of the coming of the king in Isaiah chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. How many times do I have to say that the Old Testament is worth reading because it points its way all the way to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus is coming in wrath and judgment and there will be no escape. The enemies of God will be thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God and they will be judged. Verse 20 includes John's vision. It gives us some insight into where this great judgment will take place. There is coming a day of reckoning. And this verse gives much needed insight in that horrible event. Let's look at the place of his reckoning. This verse tells us that the winepress was trodden without the city. This does not tell us where this event took place or where it will take place. However, what we're seeing in these verses are a vision of the coming battle called Armageddon. According to Revelation 16, 16, a terrible battle will take place here. And I believe and I can prove this is the battle that is being pictured in our text. You see, Armageddon means the hill or city of Megiddo. Megiddo is located in the plain of Esther This location is the site of some famous biblical battles. You see, it was here that Barak and Deborah defeated the Canaanites, Judges 4 and 5. It was here that Gideon defeated the Midianites, 
This same valley is the place that both King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 31. King Hosiah also met his death in the valley of Megiddo, 2 Chronicles 35. You see, it's the same battle where the armies of the earth will come together to destroy the king of kings. It's here in this place that Napoleon described it as a natural battlefield. A natural battlefield that the final battle of the earth will be fought. Let's look at the pain of his reckoning. You see, we are told that the winepress will be trodden. This means to crush with the feet. This is a very vivid description of what Jesus will do to those who have despised and rejected him. Like a man crushing grapes in a winepress, he will crush the enemies of God under his feet. This is the promise of the word of God. You see, a person can either be crushed under his feet or held in his arms. The sinner can either be the focus of God's wrath or God's grace. If I were you, I would be certain that I was saved so I might miss out on this terrible time of judgment. Let's look at the permanence of his reckoning. What we are witnessing here is a total destruction of the enemies of the Lord. This is not a probation period. This is not a pre-trial diversion. This is a judgment that will not this is a judgment, not one that will be lifted after a while. This is total annihilation as far as the physical man is concerned. The image here is one of violence and death. We are told that the blood will run as high as the horse's bridles. This is between four and five feet deep. Four and five feet deep. It will flow in a river some 1,600 furlongs long. That's about 200 miles. Can you imagine a river of blood that's 200 miles and four or five feet deep? Can you imagine the carnage that's in that blood? Our minds can't conceive of that. It was said by Josephus that so much blood flowed through the streets of Jerusalem when Titus sacked the city that many of the fires that had to be set to, des to destroy Jerusalem were actually put out by the blood that poured from the bodies of the slain Jews. That's a lot of blood. Even in my past, I can't remember ever seeing that much blood. You see, the armies of the world will gather in a final attempt to defy God. Jesus will return, and by his word, he will destroy the enemies of God and tread them down in the winepress of his wrath. Hundreds of millions of soldiers will die in this catastrophic battle that's in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. The blood of the fallen will fill the valley of Megiddo from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Men have rejected the precious, life-saving, life-changing blood of Jesus. Now they will wallow in their own blood. You know, when we read of these events, it's hard for us to imagine and comprehend such total devastation. Yet the Bible says it's coming. In fact, some of the Old Testament prophets wrote about these very events. Look at Joel. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. The battle will take place and God will be victorious. There is no doubt. I've read the end of the book and in the end, God wins.
You know, I don't know whether any person in the sound of my voice will be on this earth when this battle takes place. I pray not. But I know that some may be here as Joel spoke in chapter 3, verse 14, you could be in the valley of decision. So you need to decide whether you will claim the blood of Jesus and the salvation it supplies or whether you will face him someday to shed the blood of destruction. You see, his blood saves. Your blood condemns you to judgment and hell. You know, thousands of years ago, in Egypt, God saved his people by the blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb. His people killed that lamb. They placed its blood on the doorposts of their houses and went in. And when they did, they were saved, safe, and secure. You see, they were under the blood. When the death angel passed through that night, they were spared because they were under the blood. Let me ask you a question. What about you? Are you under the blood today? Has the blood of Jesus been applied to the doorposts and the lintels of your heart? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? I pray that you have, because if you haven't, you will face him one day as your judge. It's up to you. He can either be your Savior or he can be your judge. There's no in-between. There's no gray area. It's either black or white as far as God's concerned. If you're in the valley of decision, I'm going to ask you to come to Jesus right now. Because one day, Jesus will call his court to order. You need to be sure that you're saved before that day comes. I'm going to ask you to bow with me if you can. And again, if you can't, you're behind the wheel of your car. God has heard many, many times behind the wheel of my car. Pray with me. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary for each one of us. Father, we know that your Son comes as a victorious King no longer a lamb. And Father, we ask you for those that are out there that are in the sound of my voice that have not accepted your son, Father, I ask you to turn their hearts to you, O God. Let them know that the time is nigh, the time is at hand, the time for salvation is now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but now. Father, I know there are some out there that are saved, but Father, they've either drifted away from your word or they're not living a Christian life. Father, it's important for them to know that only through them and through the work that they have in your name, Father, they can bring other people to Christ so that the harvest may be one of Christians who are ready to accept Jesus Christ or Christians who have accepted Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for what he did for us on the cross. 
With this prayer, O God, we ask in his holy name. Amen. Again, if you made a decision today, I would like very much to know about it. Please send an email to ministry at christlives.org or visit our website at www.christlives.org. If you need prayers, ask. We'll be, we consider it an honor to pray for you. This concludes our lesson for today. Maita and Anisu, if you're listening out there, may God bless you and keep you. Amen.